This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am Carl Jensen here with... I'm Doug Huntington. And we have a very special guest today. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Brittany Dunn, and I am passionate about fitness and health. So, I don't really have a job title, I guess. <laughs> I do many things. <laughs> yeah, we talked a little bit about your background before you started recording how a terrible commute led you to seven years in, <laughs> in Beijing. Can you tell that story, please? Yeah, so I was working for a university in New Jersey, and it was, you know, my first very serious job. I had health insurance and a um, path to a 401k, everything that every mother and father wants for you. And I was not very um, fulfilled. I had to drive from where I was living. I couldn't take public transportation, which would have been lovely. I had to drive. So it took me, um, if I beat traffic, two hours minimum to get there, usually a little bit longer. And I had to sit all day. And even though um, the job was great, it was just requiring something of me that I realized wasn't um, for me, which was to sit all day. And I realized that I wanted to be kind of out meeting more people, not having to sit in an office and not miss the sun. So I was, I was leaving before the sun came up in the morning and, and arriving home, um, long after the sunset. And there was something that, uh, told me, you know, you need more, let's, let's look for something else. And it was so extreme that I said, I'm going to just quit my job and move to China next month just to take a chance. <laughs> you, you said something, you said your commute was two hours. If you beat traffic, is that correct? Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, I live outside of the, uh, new, the, I guess the New York traffic. So if I left no later than five thirty, I could get to the area about seven thirty, maybe seven forty-five. Um, if I left, I think any later than that, it would be maybe a three hour journey. So, and then same on the way home, you know, if I left at five o'clock, I'd maybe get home, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock, um, so I would wait it out. I'd go to the gym after work and um, wait out the traffic and then get home, you know, within two hours or maybe a little bit longer. Was there anything that specifically inspired you to quit? As aside from, of course, the negative points that you just brought up, but I'm thinking more like yeah. you heard someone's story that did this, or oh, maybe yeah. you were listening to podcasts in the four hours per day that you were commuting, <laughs> something maybe motivated you and you were like, oh, I could maybe do that too. Yeah, actually. So the first job that I had when I had graduated from my university, I was, uh, I suppose, a cultural ambassador for the International Disney program. So I met a lot of foreign students, primarily ones from China. And so it kind of piqued my interest. And I had gotten that job because I had studied abroad in my undergrad and I went to London. And so I always had it in the back of my head I, I that the world was bigger than my little state. And I really was like itching to get... Um, exposure in professional environments outside of, you know, my homeland. So I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to go abroad again. And 
Um, I was very interested in learning more about cultures that were very different from mine. I found British culture was very different, surprising, but uh, the language is the same. And I just wanted to put myself really out of my comfort zone. I think at the time I was 24 going on 25, I was a lot more daring, a lot more, um, you know, a, a lot less afraid to take risk. And I was like, it's okay that I'm leaving my nice paid job for a job that pays me nothing in a land where I don't speak the language and I don't know anybody. That's okay. It's all going to work out. And I think my family thought I was a little bit nuts for that, but um, I was too stubborn to, uh, to back out of it. Did you intend to stay in Beijing for seven years or what happened there? No, I didn't actually. I found that I was only going to go for a nice six months and then maybe I was going to go to Europe after that and then transition into, you know, a, an exciting career potentially in um, international education. And I found that the first job I had in China was not what I expected. It was a little scary. I had to like leave all my stuff behind and threaten to go to my embassy. Uh, that's a story for another podcast. Actually, I do. There is a podcast where I, I tell that story. Um, but I was, like I said, too stubborn to admit that I was maybe too impulsive. So I was like, I have to make this work. I, I know that China is not just this one experience. And so I, you know, try to keep that in mind, like from that point forward, just, you know, one negative experience does not have to color your entire perspective of one situation. So I traveled a little bit, tried to fall in love with where I was and, it was like I went on this honeymoon adventure and then um, I found my first job for a small um, American joint venture, American and Chinese, where um, I got into more like business English coaching and I got to develop some curriculum. And then I found these very um, energetic and happy Swedish people um, jumping around in the park. And I had been looking for a gym that was affordable in Beijing to you know, just continue my, my routine that I had started before I left. And they were like, yeah, we're going to do some sport and, and jump around. And I was like, I don't really know what they're talking about, but it was just so much fun. And by the end of the workout, I was dripping in sweat and I was so sore for the next few days. And so I, it just became addictive. And then flash forward a few months, I started training to become an instructor. And then that sort of was the thread of all of my Beijing life. I became, um, a fitness instructor. And then I started doing this kind of programming in schools and I taught music and movement in a lot of Chinese kindergartens and um, elementary schools. I started doing a lot of like workshops on like safe running coaching. Yeah. A lot of, and then I started training in yoga and in Pilates. I, I went to India, I went to Thailand, I went to Hong Kong. Um, and I just started infusing like fitness into everything that I did amongst all the other jobs that I, I held at the time. And then it just one one professional opportunity led to another, and it was a really exciting time to be there because it was a very tight knit um, expat community, as well as the local um, people that I I worked with and interacted with were just so lovely and welcoming, and you know it led me to a lot of opportunities I never would have dreamed of. Uh, so yeah, I was there just about seven years, and then I made the decision to repatriate or come back home and on to the next chapter. Yeah, that's a great segue because we're here today to talk about fitness and we just, <laughs> we just did a workout. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, let's talk about body composition, weight, fat, muscle. Mm. What, what should we be tracking? So it's interesting that you're asking that because I don't like to use the word should. We should do this because we're all so different from each other. Just 
you know, in, in an average day when I'm in the gym or I'm teaching, I hear so many people tell me their stories and they talk about their preferences and what they like to do, what they, what they do do. And they always bring up this word should, I know I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And I like to start with, well, what are your goals? What matters to you? So when it comes to tracking, everybody's a little bit different, right? There are those of us who love spreadsheets. I am not one of those people. There are those of us who are very like data driven. Um, I like to track something different. So I think for so many of us, um, the number on the scale is that number that we use for um, guiding whether or not we're you know doing well or we're fit. I say that leaves out a lot. So the number on the scale only really tells you just like literally what your mass is. It doesn't really focus on your body composition. And so there is this acronym that people have learned to be afraid of called BMI. And I say that, you know, we, we throw it out the window because BMI is merely just your height and your weight. So I don't know about you, but I've definitely had experiences where I go to my primary care physician, thankfully not currently, but in the past where they put you on the scale and they weigh you and they say, oh, you know, based on your BMI, you're either healthy or overweight or obese or underweight. And I remember one of my last visits to my primary care, I got on the scale and he looked at me and he said, oh, you're actually heavier than I thought you were. I I mean, you're okay, but like you're bordering on overweight. And I remember just uh, taking a deep breath and I handed him a paper and the paper was a printout from um, an in-body machine. So that did um, your body composition. So he took a look at it and he said, oh, okay, I guess you have a lot of muscle. Um, I, oh, I guess you're okay. And then he like looks down at his belly and he's like, I guess I should go to the gym and maybe I should, I should start lifting weights. So <laughs> I tell that story because I, the amount of people I hear that are just dreading going to the doctor and getting on the scale and having their doctor who admittedly a lot of doctors do not get any kind of nutrition uh, training in medical school, or if they do, it's, it's at a minimal. And the ones who, who, who know do further training. So a lot of times people are getting shamed by traditional doctors for being quote unquote overweight when what is the actual picture? There are a lot of people that maybe are a little bit bigger that are in, you know, great shape or very healthy. So for, you know, I'm, I'm being very verbose when it comes to answering your question, but there is not like one thing you should be tracking. If you are curious about measuring something that gives you a better picture of how you're doing, you could do something like a DEXA scan or this in-body fat analysis. Um, there's this horrible machine where you step on, it's called a fit 3d and it shows you this gray blob of your body and nobody looks good. And so I don't really recommend anybody that has any kind of body image issues get on that machine. But, um, for other people, I think it's really cool, uh, to just, you know, take a tape measure and take your measurements. And it's a nice way to kind of track, you know, what we want to be measuring, which is, you know, like how, much muscle we have on our body versus how much um, body fat we have. The two things I really pay attention to and that I think are pretty important are blood pressure and resting heart rate. My Mm. blood pressure now is like 130 over 78, which is either hypertensive or borderline hypertensive. And my resting heart rate is in the high 60s. And when I was at my peak fitness, it was somewhere, I think, below 55. So that's what I really care about. But I know to get there, obviously, your body fat's going to have to come down, and I'll have to be in better shape than I am now. 
So my focus is less on weight and more on those two core numbers, especially the blood pressure one. It's so important to have a healthy blood pressure, I think, over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I have a question, though, for you, Carl. When are you taking your blood pressure? Because a lot of times that has something to do with the numbers. Um, it's at night before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I do notice that a lot of people, when they're the only time they track their blood pressure is when they're at the doctor's, and a lot of times that could lead to a spike because they're a bit nervous or based on you know their past numbers, it could be a little bit skewed. Um, it's good if you're tracking it regularly and at, at the same time of day, but also blood pressure, I think can be genetic. Um, there are definitely things that we can do that a lot of people say affect, um, you know, our resting heart rate and our blood pressure, you know, maybe this is a good segue into talking about like cardiovascular health and, you know, these trendy terms that you might hear like Tabata or hit and, you know, what is, um, like what is good to do for your heart. So, in general, I think the more simple we can make things, the better. So if you are moving more, um, you can move um, more strategically as well, right? So, you know, a lot of people think the first thing that I should do to improve my heart health is just go for a run, right? Go for a really long run. And I would argue that that is not maybe the best place that you should be starting, especially if you don't have a long history of being a runner or you haven't really studied proper running form and you just hear, oh, you know, what I did in high school, I would just run a few miles, lose a bunch of weight and I'd be fine. Well, over time, you know, as we get older, I hear a lot more people complaining about hip pain, about knee pain, shin splints, um, issues with their feet, issues with their back after a long run. And uh, how we run uh, is really important, especially if we're doing distance, but it's also a lot of impact on the body. Running is one of the most dangerous sports that we can do. We don't do it properly. So a lot of times we'll just choose this kind of like steady state cardio. We'll go on the, the treadmill, we'll go on the elliptical. And now that might have an impact on our endurance over time, right? It's always good to not be super winded if you're out shoveling snow or be super winded after, you know, a few minutes into a hike, we want to be able to last a long time. But there's more research that has been coming out over, I'd say the last 10 to 20 years, that that doesn't affect the entire population benefitly, uh, sorry, that doesn't um, impact the health of everybody. There is a a percentage of the population that does not respond to um, aerobic activity the same way as everybody else. But what does help everybody is doing these like short bursts of super intensive cardio. So high um, interval intensity training or HIT, um, where you're getting into your anaerobic state. So you're getting into your state without oxygen for a short, short period of time. So that's really crucial that you don't do So we did it in the workout, guys, those bursts where you go as hard as you can, maybe not a lot of impact, but you're getting your heart rate spiked as high as you you possibly can within a short amount of time, and then you recover. So you don't do it for more than um, like a little burst of two minutes, and that's like the max. Like most people will not do it up to two minutes. You would do it up to about 30 seconds to 45 seconds maybe, Um, and then you'd pass out if you did it more than two minutes because you're without oxygen. So they're showing that these like short bursts and even these micro bursts of hit throughout the week, like even doing them, you know, like a a tiny little circuit, doing it twice in a week has more benefit to the body than going on long runs for extended periods of time or doing these like long hour, you know, uh, 
jaunts on a bike. It has more impact on your cardiovascular health and your overall health than just this like, kind of like old school cardio. What is the underlying physiological mechanism behind HIT that causes it to be more effective as far as weight loss or fat burning? That is a great question, Carl. I have to look into that a little bit more. Um, I know Ben Greenfield, um, one of the trainers within the space that is big on longevity, talks about it a lot. More is coming out that it affects your um, metabolic rate, I believe. So, um, and also, I, I want to use this to transition into something um, that is another hot word you might hear called hormetic stressor. So, hormesis is a term that means like a positive stress or a eustress, like a small little stress on the body that can do um, long term good things to you. So for example, like a, a toxic stress would have, um, you know, just too much harm on the body where these little stressors, so like a little bit of pain for a short amount of time does more good over time. So an example of this is, um, exercise, a short burst of exercise. It adds a little inflammation to the body, which is a good thing. And it can cause a positive change. Whereas if you did too much exercise or you you went too hard for too many days in a row, that would cause too much inflammation. That would be um, a negative effect on the body. So hormesis is like these short um, doses of exercise. Hormesis is uh, also cold exposure, uh, sauna, um, intermittent fasting. So going without food for um, certain periods of time. Also, there's another type of hormetic stressor that I've been a little scared to try, but it's interesting, like um, ozone training. Um, and ozone therapy. Uh, so there's different things that are coming out in this field of longevity that is shown to affect your health positively. And HIT is another one of them within the, the exercise space. It's like this short dose of like a good stress on the body that produces um, a positive change. So I'm sorry, I can't exactly answer your question of like, what is the physiological benefit of HIT? I have to look into that a little bit more, but I know it is a, a eustress or a hermetic stressor. I listened to a podcast recently. I think it was one that you sent me and they mentioned that probably if you're doing HIT, you're engaging more muscles. So it fits in exactly with what you're saying, Brittany, where metabolically, like you're using more muscles. So you're burning more calories later after you're not doing the workout. Would that logically fit into what you were saying? Yeah, except I'm a little bit hesitant to support the whole, we must be burning more calories because, um, again, that gets into this like kind of sensitive space of the calories in versus calories out and how that's been showing. It's, it's kind of a controversial, um, topic. If you say like just burning more calories is all you need when, all of our metabolic rate uh, is is just different, no matter what our size is, and the um, the quality of the calories that you're eating matters a lot more than the amount of the calories that you're eating. And how we burn our, our burn rate has to do with like a lot of different things, even just like purely what size we are or how tall we are. And also another thing, another transition is depends on the type of um, body change that has happened. So, for example, um, you know, remember the show The Biggest Loser you know, the show came under a lot of controversy because they went about uh, performing these like kind of like weight loss transformations in very fast, unhealthy ways. And so there was a study by the National Institute of Health that tracked the initial contestants, um, specifically their basal metabolic rate. So their BMR, 
So to see where they started the show, how, how many calories they would burn um, just in a day. And then at the end of the show, um, they found that their BMR had slowed dramatically. So, and the thing with BMR is that it doesn't necessarily go back up. So even after, the, so after the show and they could not maintain those same conditions, I mean, nobody could, they were putting them through um, very extreme and austere methods and, and quite a lot of the time unhealthy. Then they would slowly start to gain the weight back. And then they would find when they got almost back to where they were at the start and they, they measured their BMR, it had not come back to what they originally were. So that meant it was even harder to maintain that original weight that they started at. So they got it. Sometimes they gained even more weight than their starting weight from the show. So that just goes to, to see that if we do kind of extreme methods to um, change our body, to lose a bunch of weight, a lot of times that will affect our metabolic rate. And so I know that sounds almost like depressing. Like, well, what does that mean? Should we just like not lose weight? No, it just how we go about maybe changing the, the, the body composition uh, uh, or just go about changing our, our body, if, if that is a goal of ours, needs to be done in, in a a more careful, more safe way. And one of those ways is definitely um, looking at your strength training versus like how much cardio you're doing and what, and of course what you're eating. And I want to jump back if I can. So Carl, you're working on your blood pressure and your resting heart rate. So those are probably lagging indicators. So you got to do some other stuff up front. So I'll ask you what you're doing and then maybe Brittany, you can say what he should be doing. <laughs> uh, so I do do strength training, although uh, I'm not super intense about it. I'm not trying to gain muscle weight at this time from everything I've read. It's very hard to put on muscle and lose weight at the same time. So I'm not even trying to gain muscle weight. Although I have noticed my pull-ups, I just, did, I was telling Doug, I did 12 pull-ups, clean pull-ups the other week. Uh, as far as cardio stuff, I do the hit, and I also do just speed walking um, because I've found in the past that has made me when, – when I'm very active, like when I'm working on my house, I'm constantly moving, going up and down stairs. I just naturally lose weight without doing much of anything else. So now I don't have a lot of house stuff left, so I do the speed walking to kind of mimic that. And you've been going to the mall – uh, recently <laughs> walking with the senior citizens, you were saying, right? Yeah, I do. I, I kick all their asses. I blow past them and That's say, see, see a soccer. Yeah, they're on their little It's a cool Adidas jumpsuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that, that sounds pretty good. All right, Brittany, you got it. I really look forward to seeing Carl the, Mar the Mall Walker, the series. I feel like that's a podcast <laughs> or TV show in, in itself. Um, well, first of all, Carl, I think it's awesome that, you know, you are so active and that you're exploring different ways to affect your health and in, just improve, you know, your overall, um, you know, movement amount within the day. You have some, some fitness goals, I hear, doing those pull-ups. Good job. But I, again, I'm going to come back to that word should, what, what should Carl be doing? I would argue that we all have different needs and I am not a medical doctor. So I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, Carl, you need to be doing this to improve your blood pressure. I would say, get really curious about what makes you feel better 
And if you want to get regular blood work done, and if you're finding that you're not really finding out much information from basic blood work, you could start looking into working with a professional like a naturopath or a functional medicine practitioner that is maybe going to um, take like a more in-depth panel. Um, you could maybe look at getting your microbiome looked at. You could maybe get your hormones tested. There's a bunch more testing that you could look into. But I would say, you know, if you're already monitoring your blood work um, and you're already monitoring your um, your blood pressure regularly, just note, like do, doing these little micro experiments, you're like, so maybe if you go for a week where you're um, doing, um, you're just focusing on HIIT, and then you're just seeing if that has any impact on your, your blood pressure. Maybe you make a note of that. Maybe there's a week where you, you do three, um, three just like heavy strength training days and you just notice how that affects. But the one thing that I haven't mentioned yet that I'm really excited to talk about is your stress management. Personally, I have seen in my life so many people be positively affected, especially with their blood pressure. Um, when they started using these mind body practices. So working on um, meditation, working on breath work. Um, I know my mother does Qigong and Tai Chi and she's seen, you know, a lot of improvements in her blood pressure um, from, you know, working on her, how she manages stress. And, um, you know, I think this is, this has been talked about a lot in the last decade or more, how, that is a huge factor on your blood pressure is, is your, your stress load. So how not, not eliminating stress from the body, because that's not the goal, but how you manage and how you deal with stress. So for example, the stress response can be trained. So if you're someone that gets really, really triggered by something, say like in traffic, you like lose it. You're just someone that's like, screaming at the car in front of you, stressing out your family as you do it. Not that, not that you guys are, I, I have no idea. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you um, can notice the feelings, like say you start getting tight in your chest, you start feeling hot in your cheeks, you can kind of notice these physio physiological changes when you get into this more fight or flight mode. You start to notice that you could stop yourself from fully flipping into fight or flight by doing like even just a simple like deep breath, like inhaling through the nose, exhaling through the mouth. Um, obviously, if you're driving, you shouldn't be closing your eyes, but you can you can take a nice <laughs> like even just a minute of some deep breaths, and that can stop you from flipping into that um, fight or flight mode, which has you know fight or flight is there to preserve us from you know predators, right? But the the problem is now we're so triggered by any little thing, like an email, a phone call that, um, we have to recognize the signs of when we're going to flip so that we don't, you know, scream at our boss. We don't scream at our family. We don't like break down into, uh, into tears, like in the, in the middle of society and, and, um, and have like some, some consequences that we have to, you know, deal with or apologize for later. And then what's really cool about the stress response is the more you practice not losing, losing it, in the face of, of a stressor, the easier it is to not react in the future. So just like we practice anything in our lives, the more we practice not responding in a way that is, is too emotional or too explosive, the easier it is to not be triggered the next time it happens. And you find that 
the the more you you practice doing this, the easier it is. And and the opposite is true too. The more you like kind of give in to these triggers and you just mm-hmm. say something like, well, I'm just a fiery person or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just, I, I'm from New Jersey. Like just, just how we are. Like, I think that's a poor excuse because it becomes more addictive to respond uh, reactively when any time a stressor happens, the more you kind of practice like letting yourself go into fight or flight. So I think, I think that's a really cool tool as well. And it definitely impacts your blood pressure. Okay, cool. So I like the approach. It's, uh, we're not only talking about exercise, we're talking about getting our mind right as well and the influence of the mind on the body. Well, there's a huge link too. (laughs) They're not separate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, before we go on, I was going to say, I didn't know what my blood pressure was because I don't check it very often, but I was at Sam's the other week, uh, I, w- I was there for a few minutes. So I, I sat down in the pharmacy section, got my blood pressure taken. Do you remember what it was exactly? Yeah. Your high number, your diastolic or your systolic was like 96, right? Yeah. It was like 90, 96 over like 60 something. Yeah. You're like, almost dead. It was very, it was much lower <laughs> oh, no. than, I, no, than no. I thought. No, no. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a compliment. I didn't yeah. think, I've never heard of blood pressure being that low. It was, uh, yeah, but I mean, it kind of go. I'm, I'm pretty calm most of the time nowadays. It used to be much more stressed, but Sam's, very calm now. Sam's Club is a calming place too. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's like. Do they have samples yeah. at Sam's Club? You know, they they have a few, but I I tend to not get the samples. But uh, they they have them. You know, if you want to browse around there so it's it, it is but when i said call me i'm kind of serious too you go to costco and there's like a billion people there sam's club is always mellow they've got the have you ever seen the robot floor cleaner driving around oh yeah yeah, yeah i see that i like to just watch that maybe i should hang out at sam's more i think i'd be in a better place yeah just it's not a, too far you could walk over there yeah either. just avoid the hot dog and brownie sunday that they, the brownie sunday is only a dollar fifty I, I was tempted to order that but and this is actually a good segue to our next <laughs> Topic. We have about 15 minutes left before Doug and I have a meeting. We haven't talked about diet yet. So that there's two things that I specifically want to ask you about diet. And mm. the first one is uh, thoughts on diet have changed. When I was a kid, the American whatever heart association was promoting a high sugar, low fat diet. And it seems like that's tipped on its head. So I'd like you to speak to that. And the other thing about diet is, I forgot, but it'll come back to me. So let's talk about <laughs> the appropriate diet. I love that. I love that you mentioned that high sugar, low fat. I grew up in that generation. Mm-hmm. I remember the snack wells, the fat-free fig newtons, the low fat milk. And I just remember as a child being really grateful that my parents still made me eat real food because I remember like eating the, mm. the fat-free food where, when I was out and being like, this just tastes like utter garbage. It's gross. Like I, I just wanted real food. I, I liked the high fat things. And why did that start? I actually <laughs> hear this all over the place. There was this lovely man named Ansel Keys who um, kind of cherry-picked data from the famous China study to show that countries, he picked seven countries out of the study that included more than 20 countries to try to show a correlation between heart disease after Eisenhower, I believe it was Eisenhower, had a heart attack, you know, the I like Ike guy um, in the 50s. So they wanted to show that there was a link between um, fat and heart disease. Um, So he cherry-picked data to show that there was when there was a British doctor, um, I believe his first name is John, John Yudkin, who 
was coming out and saying, actually, no, sugar is more the problem. Fat is not to be demonized. Fat is just fat. We need fat. It's a macronutrient. And they um, kind of laughed at him. And um, the uh, sugar lobby kind of got um, Ansel Keys. Uh, he made him a celebrity and so supported him because they realized like, okay, um, more sugar in things. We have an opportunity to, if we take out the fat, there goes the, that satiety, that mouthfeel. So we're going to need to make the food taste better somehow. So we're going to add some more sugar into it. So there is a huge opportunity. So then there's a huge link, um, uh, from, I believe at some point in the seventies, um, like through like, I'd say even like the mid nineties of like the explosion of, um, weight gain in, in Western countries. Yeah. And then why is that no longer, um, like a given because now I'm sure you hear high fat, low carb, you know? So there's so many trends that are popping up, but with any diet, it can be, um, let me see if I can say this in a better way. Any diet can be effective short term, right? But what diets are are proven to be safer is what works again for you and your individual body needs. So what's really cool nowadays is that we could get, we can use data. So if you um, were to use something like a continuous glucose monitor, you you could see how you respond to certain foods instead of guessing. So for example, some people will wear it and after they eat, you know, like kind of like a higher um, healthy carbohydrate meal to see like what's their response to what is their metabolic response to that food. And they might be surprised and they're like, wow, a sweet potato. I respond the same way as eating ice cream. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. And then other people, that sweet potato does not spike their glucose. So what's really interesting is we can't you know, just say, um, oh, you're a skinny person. Give me your diet. How do you eat? I'm going to eat like that. And it's going to be effective for me. Everybody is unique a lot more. And I'm sure you hear this word a lot is autoimmunity. There are a lot of people with autoimmune conditions that, you know, if they eat nightshade vegetables, if they eat vegetables that grow at night, that affects them like in a really, really bad way. And a lot of them have gut issues and, you know, a lot of them can't eat gluten or dairy. So you hear a lot of these different, um, diets now that are crafted specifically around like these things that people can't eat. So a lot of people have developed like food allergies. So again, there isn't one way we should eat. I just encourage you to explore how you feel after eating certain, certain foods. And then one thing, not one thing, but something that can help everybody is, um, understanding the things that are not helping us. So, you know, the things that you do in extremes, like too much sugar is just not going to be good for anybody. A little sugar, if you're not a sugar addict, you know, because we are 90% bacteria, we are only 10% human. We have, um, in our microbiome, we have bacteria that's going to be, um, favoring the types of foods that we eat right? So if we're eating a lot of sugar, we're going to have a lot of bacteria that love sugar. If we don't eat sugar that often, um, we're not going to have that, that same, you know, presence or abundance of that same bacteria. So we're not going to get the same sort of, um, like a caloric intake from that food as if, you know, we had, if we were like a, a, a chronic sugar eater. So like a little bit of sugar is, is not going to, um, impact us negatively. It, the problem is if we do something every day, if we eat a lot of processed food, 
um, we're probably going to not have enough fiber in our diet, or we're going to have like an abundance of an unhealthy salt. If we smoke cigarettes, obviously nowadays we know that that's not doing you any good. Um, if we don't get enough sleep, that's going to mess up our hormones. That's going to affect everybody negatively. I've never heard of any studies saying that someone who, you know, went, went around on like two hours of sleep a day was thriving and living longer. We do need to move our bodies, but how we move our bodies is again, going to depend on our own physiology, our own genetics, and, and also what we enjoy. My takeaway is we might be able to eat ice cream instead of sweet potatoes on that. So I, I should check. It sounds oh, pretty no, good. I was worried. I was worried about that. I was hoping you wouldn't hear that. <laughs> I'm going to invent a new diet called the Cheeto diet. Not, not Nothing but Cheetos. Everything will turn orange on you. Yeah. You'll just have this healthy glow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as we're wrapping up, there's a couple topics maybe we can cover in a future time period, but I think the accountability and motivation, this is something that you noted. So if you want to frame that in a certain way here. Yeah. How do we, I guess any diet is only effective. And I don't even like the word diet because that kind of implies a short term thing for a lot of people. I'm going to go on this diet, I'm going to lose my weight, and then I'll go back to whatever I was doing before. So how do we... I think it's important to not try to lose 10 pounds and then figure out what's next. It's tr the most important thing is to try to develop sustainable, like long-term habits that we don't need to continually motivate ourselves. How do we, how do we do that? How do we be fit for life and have good food for life? <laughs> this is a great question. I stumbled upon something a few years ago that really stuck with me. So I am not a type A person. I used to spend a lot of time wishing I was, I wish I could just look at this workout and do it. I wish someone would just give me the perfect diet and I would adhere to it 100% of the time. And I was always, you know, just ragging on myself and saying, oh, I'm just lazy. I just need to like, you know, step up and just do it. And like, what's wrong with me? And I read um, Gretchen Rubin, who is the author of The Happiness Project. She wrote a book called The Four Tendencies. And, you know, just like any of these like personality frameworks, you know, they should be taken with a grain of salt, but sometimes they're helpful to help us better understand ourselves. In it, she talks about two things, accountability and motivation. And she discovered this because she was having lunch with a friend who said she really wanted to get back into uh, running again. She had been a runner in school, both in, I think, high school and college. And she said, you know, I really want to run like a 5K again, but I just never get around to running. Like, I really want to run, but I just never do it. And the author looked at her and was like, I'm really curious about this because if I want to run, I'll just do it. If I say I want to do it, I'll do it. And then it led her into exploring how people's accountability is different and how their motivation is different. And she's kind of um, watered it down to four types. And one of the types is that kind of that type A, so that upholder, someone they're internally motivated um, and they are externally or they're internally held accountable. They hold themselves accountable. And about 70 percent of the population, she claims, is, is something called an obliger, which is you are motivated externally and you are and you have um, accountability is to other people. So you are held accountable by other people, not yourself. You would give up on your own goals before letting someone else down. 
And when I read that, I, I kind of like a light bulb went off and I was like, ding, ding, ding. Like, that's me. I became a fitness teacher because I like helping people and I want to show up for people. I'll work out if I'm leading a class like what I did with you. I will never let those people down. Like a car accident would have to stop me from getting there. Whereas um, if like I know what to do, I'm, I've been a trainer for over 10 years, but I will like rarely, rarely just go to the gym by myself with my headphones, follow my own program and, and like hit it hard. But if there's one other person there with me or I'm training another person and I have to demo properly, like I will give it like 150% effort. And so I realized, okay, I am, I'm not only motivated by the presence of another person, I am held accountable by people showing up. They said there's variations within the types. Like some people are so bad that they need something like you, if you both want to work out, and you say, I want to work out every morning at 5 a.m. And you have an accountability buddy. You even switch shoes with each other and your different shoe sizes. And the one person can't work out if the other person doesn't show up. So you would be so ashamed by that that you definitely would come. So there's like different variations. And some people just need the accountability of an app, right? Like they have an app that rewards them or they have an app that like dings the money or, or something. And they can use that. And so what I took away from that book is we have to better hack our own type rather than try to be someone that, that we're not, or someone like our, you know, our spouse or our, our family member, we have to decide what type of accountability works for us. So it's identifying systems that kind of nudge you forward. So I was thinking about this, um, before our call, because when I lived in China, I didn't actually have to use a lot of willpower to not eat sweets or lots of cheese or to walk more because my environment, I had hacked my, my environment to set me up for success. I, I had a bicycle. I didn't have a car. Um, I had to walk. I did maybe 30 to 35,000 steps a day. And I, I barely tracked, um, when I would just look at my, like I had like a, um, it was called like a Xiaomi. It was like the original like pedometer in, in China. It was like a, a knockoff of something. And, um, I was like, oh, wow, I'm getting a lot of steps. I'm getting a lot of movement. in. I didn't have to avoid baked goods because the, the baked goods that, um, were sold around me weren't tempting. Cause they had like a kind of, they used this kind of different sugar and it just wasn't for me uh, like attractive. Like I wasn't tempted by it. Um, I, I just cooked more because it was cheaper. Um, so I realized that I didn't really have to think as much because I had set up my environment just by moving to the city um, to set me up for more success and hold me accountable because they're just, I'd have to go out of my way to do the things that would kind of harm my health. Like I had to actually leave, like order something online and have it shipped to me. And by the time, like if I wanted Ben and Jerry's, it would be like half frozen and, and like with ice burn. So I just wouldn't eat it. Yeah. Our our shirt, our shirtless car wash challenge is highly motivating for me. I guess I need the external (laughs) motivation, at least in part. Yeah. Yeah, that'll work. Okay, so on that, we have two minutes left, Brittany. So where can people find you and how can, what do you do? Do you have an online presence or... <laughs> where can that sounds that sounds funny? Where can you find me? <laughs> I'll find you. No, um, I'm. I guess you could say I'm on Instagram at Britt Erin Dunn. So B R I T T E R I N D U N N. Yeah, you can connect with me on social media. I will be launching something very soon to add more fun, not only to my life but hopefully to other people 
who can relate to me with the accountability and motivation. They need, they need other people to make them show up. So I'll be launching something to find, find more fun and fitness very soon. So okay. How soon will that be? Telling you more about, um, within the next month. Okay. Yeah. All right. Perfect. This has been awesome, Brittany. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. Thank you. Talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five, and uh, actually we don't give high fives in in person, so the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week.